actually finish the Gospel of John tonight. So turn with me to John chapter 21. And this is our Through the Bible study on Wednesday nights. And so next week, we're going to start the book of Acts. And so you can start reading ahead and studying the book of Acts. John 21. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the opportunity to study the gospel of John over the last several months. And as we finish up this study, would you speak to our hearts? May we understand your unconditional love, the fact that you're the God of restoration. We see that so clearly in Peter's life, that you didn't stop loving him when he failed. It was at that point of his failure that you were faithful. So God, would you lift our burdens? Would you lift our concerns? Would you give us ears to hear? Pray that you'd set me aside and give me strength in communicating your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I just love is old things, and especially old things restored. And maybe you share this love. Our first house that we bought was built in 1947, and it was really beat up. It had been a rental home for seven years. It wasn't necessarily in a nice uh, part of town. It was a drug house before we purchased it. We didn't know that before we bought it. And when everybody started coming to the door at odd hours, it's like something's not quite right. So finally I said, you know what, you tell all your buddies that whoever doesn't live here anymore and we don't sell drugs. And that kind of solved the the problem from there. But it was a fun process to just fix that house up, especially on a shoestring budget. And we we sold it a a long time ago, but some of our most favorite memories as a, a married couple. And maybe you can relate to that is restoration. And God's the God of restoration. And when it comes to restoration, it doesn't always make sense on a budgetary level, does it? You've probably heard the phrase money pit when it comes to a house. And when you're fixing up an old house, it can be a money pit. And when God would look at our lives, it wouldn't make sense from a budgetary standpoint. But in fact, he's so committed to restoring us that he sent his son to die upon the cross for us. And we get to read tonight this wonderful picture of God restoring Peter. If you think of God's love was just present in your life before you received Christ as your Savior, you have to understand that his love never stops. And we think, well, if I fail as a believer, then God doesn't love me or he's ashamed of me. And that's not the case, is God's always ready to welcome us back. I'd like for you to consider, if we don't have John chapter 21, if we don't have the restoration of Peter, then we don't have all that happens in the book of Acts with Peter. We don't have his sermon that he gives, his first sermon where 3,000 people get saved the first time. That's quite a first message if you ask me. We don't have Peter going up to the temple and seeing the crippled man and speaking to him in the name of Jesus for him to be healed. We don't have first and second Peter. It all hinges right here as God restores Peter. Verse 1 of John 21 After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way, he showed himself. After these things, what's occurred? Well, we have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to the disciples after his crucifixion. 
I like the way that verse one reads because it says that he reveals himself in this way. He showed himself in this way. One of the things that you find with the resurrection of Jesus it was that he was all about revealing himself to individuals and he never did it in the same way. We have doubting Thomas, right? Jesus comes and ministers to him in a specific way. We have Peter in his own struggles and Jesus comes to him specifically. We fast forward to Saul's life, who's on his high horse going to Damascus, and God revealed himself in a specific way to Saul. In the resurrected Jesus Christ, he's here with us, and we have that same testimony in our own lives of how he showed himself to us, how he reached our hearts, how he restored our hearts. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, two brothers, and two others of his disciples were together. Seven total of the disciples, 11 disciples at this point because Judas has hung himself. Notice they're hanging out together. They're at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias is a synonym for the Sea of Galilee. This is a very difficult time for the disciples. We can't even begin to imagine what it was like for them, for Jesus Christ to be crucified. They weren't anticipating the resurrection. Even though they've seen the resurrected Savior, they're still trying to grasp what this means for Christ to be risen from the dead. But one thing they didn't do is forsake fellowship. One thing they didn't do is stop hanging out together. And if you're going through a hard time of confusion tonight, maybe the last thing that you want to do is be here, and I'm proud of you. Maybe the last thing that you want to do is be around brothers and sisters in Christ. But when we're in times of difficulty, that's when we need to press into relationship and not run away from relationship. John is going to play a really big part in Peter's restoration here in just a few verses. And if Peter wasn't hanging around John, he wouldn't have seen Christ in the same way. Have you ever had a friend in the midst of turmoil that's able to point you to Jesus Christ? We all need that kind of friend. They stayed together in time of difficulty. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. I'm going fishing, guys. It's time. Now, Peter makes a decision here, doesn't he? Is it the right decision? Arguably, no. Because Jesus had called him away from fishing in Luke chapter 5. He called Peter to be a fisher of men. Nothing wrong with fishing. This was Peter's livelihood. But Peter's saying something here. He's saying, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of this plan that God has for my life. I'm going back to what is comfortable. I'm going back to fishing. In times of difficulty, especially in God's calling on our lives, whether it's what he's placed on your heart with your children or reaching out in your neighborhood or what he's called you to inside of this church, we have those valleys. And in those valleys, we have our resignation letter ready to email to God, ready to text to God saying, I'm going fishing. I'm I'm done with this ministry that you've called me to do. I'm going to go back to what is comfortable. That's what Peter does at this point. And his friends say, well, we're going to go with you. We're, We're going to go fishing with you as well, Peter. How's their experience? In verse three, they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. 
Take the opportunity, not right now, but later on this evening, is Google Sea of Galilee and check out the images. I know some of you are resisting right now. You're like, I've got Wi-Fi connection in here and I can just do it, but it's huge. The Sea of Galilee is huge. If you've ever been there, you can't see from one side over uh, to the other. You can see the mountains on the other side, but you can't see the other shore. Beautiful. This is a place where Peter grew up, where James grew up, where John grew up. They grew up fishing. This was their stomping ground. Professional fishermen. There probably wasn't too many times where they got completely skunked, where they fished all night long and came back empty-handed. They caught nothing. I've had a lot of fishing trips like that, but Peter probably hasn't as he was a professional fisherman. Can you relate when you get away from God's call on your life, the emptiness that comes upon you? As a child of God, maybe you've had those seasons where you've wandered, where you've drifted. Maybe you haven't gone into full-on rebellion. Maybe you have, but you didn't catch anything. There was an emptiness to your soul. I can absolutely relate to this. I've found in my own journey with the Lord, when I get away from Him, when I get away from feasting on Him, being satisfied in Him, drinking of the living water, I catch nothing. There's absolutely nothing for us outside of Jesus Christ. If you're in that endeavor tonight, save yourself a world of heartache and come back to the Lord, and come back to what he's called you to do. It's God and his grace and his love for us that allows us to come up empty-handed when we drift from him. It's his loving hand upon us. Verse four, but when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is fairly common in these resurrection experiences with Christ, is it takes a little bit for them to recognize Jesus. Jesus is just hanging out upon the shore. We try to put ourselves in Peter's shoes. He's done what he said he would never do. He stood in confidence to his Lord and said, even if these guys forsake you, I will never forsake you. His worst nightmare came upon him. The words of Christ were fulfilled. Before the rooster was to crow, he denied Christ three times. He swore that he never knew Christ. Think about that. Cursing, emphatic with passion that he's not a follower of Jesus Christ. The rooster crows, Jesus' eyes look to Peter. Peter looks to the eyes of his Savior. Peter begins to weep. Jesus goes on to his trial, goes on to his crucifixion to die for Peter's sins. Up until this point, even though Jesus has appeared to the disciples, there's not reconciliation between Peter and Jesus. This issue hasn't been brought up. It's that elephant in the room. Peter's frustrated. He's feeling condemned. He's literally wanting to throw in the towel. I'm gonna go back to what's comfortable, tries it for all night and catches nothing. That is humbling. If you go back to your strength, you go back to what you're good at, and all of a sudden you can't even do what you're good at, and they look out at the shore, and Jesus is standing on the shore. This says something to me about the character of our God. The God's restorative. As Jesus is standing on the shore, he bears the wounds for Peter's failure. He's paid the price for Peter's denial. Now he's waiting to restore Peter. And he comes and he pursues us. Jesus comes and pursues us in our failures, but 
he waits for us to come to him as well. He's present, but he's on the shore. He's there reaching out to us, but he's wanting us to pursue Jesus Christ as well. Verse 5, then Jesus said to them, children, have you have any food? They answered him, no. Now, just by the fact that Jesus says children is a little bit of a hint, right? Because that's appropriate for Jesus to call these men children because he's their master. He's their savior. He's their Lord. But who else calls you a child? When your parents call and they say son on the phone or daughter on the phone, that's, that's appropriate. When you go to Starbucks and you're getting a cup of coffee and they say, here you go, child. Wait a second, you know. Every once in a while, you'd be getting something at a restaurant or whatever and the server or the barista will say, here you go, sweetie. I'm like, wait a second. No, I'm, I'm not your sweetie. My, my mom calls me that. My wife calls me that apparently. But please don't call me that, right? And it's usually someone a little bit older in age, but it's like, no, no, that, that just doesn't quite fit. I, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. And here are these guys, these big fishermen, and they're out fishing all night long. And then here's this voice, hey, kids, hey, hey children, have, have you caught anything? And you'd think that that would start to ring a bell, the voice of, of Christ, and they respond, no. Jesus is pointing out their emptiness. This is something that God likes to do. Even with Adam, when he created Adam, what was Adam's assignment? Go and name all these animals. He's naming the animals, male, female, male, female, and he's realizing he doesn't have a counterpart. He doesn't have a mate. God was revealing his need to him. And that's what the Lord wants to do to us. He wants to reveal our emptiness. And this is something that's very uncomfortable, but do you have any food? Are you finding your soul satisfied in Jesus Christ? Or have you gotten away from the main thing? Have you gotten away from, from Jesus Christ? Is there satisfaction? The answer, no. Verse six, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. This makes no logical sense, Right? Go ahead and say it. No logical sense. sense. All right. We're awake still tonight. That's good. You're fishing and the boat's 20 feet wide, 30 feet wide. I don't know exactly, but it's it's not a huge boat. It's not a a giant boat. You're drifting from here to there. So what difference is it going to make after fishing all night if you take your net and you cast it upon the other side? But there's a point here that's being made by the Lord It's when we receive his instruction, when our lives come under his direction. We can be out toiling all night, getting away from the Lord, getting away from his calling, what he desires for our lives, striving, striving, striving. We don't have anything to show for it. And the still small voice of God saying, are you ready to listen? Are you ready to take my instructions? One of the most simplest verses in the Bible, but one of the most difficult for me is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It goes like this, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall make your path straight. God's saying, you got to trust me. You can't simply go by your own intellect and your own knowledge. Will you cast the net on the other side? What if God told you to do something that doesn't make sense? that you can't figure out. He says, I just want you to 
put the net on the other side. Well, wait a second, God. I just went over that piece of water and we didn't catch anything. I'm not going to be humiliated. I'm not putting my net on the other side. God says, okay, have it your way. You're going to miss out on the 153 fish. They do it. They respond and they cast their net on the other side. It took some humility to follow Christ's instructions. It's at this moment that the bell begins to ring, that this experience starts to resonate because they've had this experience with Christ before. In verse seven, therefore the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter. Now who's the disciple whom Jesus loved? John, all right. Throughout this whole gospel, he never gives his name. He simply says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't have to be concerned what other people say about us, what we say about ourselves. We focus on God's love for us. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. What caused John to recognize the Lord? God's grace and his provision, God's goodness. See, this is part of God's restoration. A lot of times we would think, well, God's not gonna bless somebody who's in a bad place spiritually, but it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And sometimes God will lavish his grace and his goodness on someone who's struggling, not because of his approval for their actions. God's not showing approval upon Peter's actions, but he's winning Peter's heart through his goodness. Now, we love this in our lives, but we despise it in other people's lives, don't we? We go, God, why are you blessing that knucklehead? It's time for you to drop the hammer. God's saying, no, I'm going to bless him with 153 fish. It's through this blessing that I'm going to bring him back to the Lord. And John, he recognizes Christ through the grace and the goodness of God. He knows, John knows that Peter needs to get things right with the Lord. There's unfinished business. So he simply says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, this is the best thing that we can do for people. It's the best thing that we can do for our friends. When people are struggling, when people are hurting, and we don't have answers, to point them to Jesus Christ, to point them to the one who loves them, to the one who forgives them, to the one that's paid the price, to the one that understands the pain, it's the Lord. Are you hurting? It's the Lord. Jesus knows your pain. Do you need forgiveness? It's the Lord, and he points them in that direction. I'm guilty of this. I think we're all guilty of this. We do it out of a loving heart. A friend's going through a hard time. They tell us what they're going through, and then we try to solve it. We try to pick it apart. We go, okay, well, you need to do this, 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 and we hand it to them in a nice package. They're going, wait a second. That's not what I need, and that's not what I was expressing to you at this moment. People don't necessarily want to be fixed or need to be fixed. What they need is the Lord. And in those moments, if we can point them to Jesus, point them to his character, say, spend some time with the Lord. I can remember one time when I was in high school going through a, a tough time in my walk with the Lord, and I came to my youth pastor for prayer, and he listened, and he heard me out, and he says, you know what, Eric, I want you to pray. I'm like, what? No, I came for you to pray for me. Isn't that the way this is supposed to work? Like, you're the pastor. I'm having a hard time. You pray for me. And he says, no, I want you to pray. I want you to go to the Lord. You need to get this right with the Lord. He was pointing me to the Lord. Peter sees the Lord, and when he heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. So he's got his fishing 
garment on. He's probably fishing in his underwear, most likely. I know that probably makes you uncomfortable, but Israel's hot. It's the Middle East. It's through the night, and he was probably out there fishing in his tidy whities and he's like, I can't go get things right with the Lord in this state. So he puts on his outer garment. You know, he puts his clothes on because he'd removed it, and he plunged into the sea. I think this is the quality that Jesus absolutely loved in Peter. We pick on Peter. Peter made so many mistakes. He failed greatly. But what stands out about Peter is he loved Jesus. And in this moment, he's not going to let anything stand between him and Christ, not even his failure. Judas hung himself in condemnation. Peter received forgiveness as he ran to the Lord. You may be great at messing up. You may consider your life to be a great failure. But if you'll get this one attribute of Peter, when we do fail, I'm not going to run away from the Lord. I'm going to run to him. I'm going to swim towards him. I recognize. Think about Jesus. Here he is on the shore. He sees Peter. And now Peter's just barreling it for Christ. That had to overwhelm the heart of Jesus. Going, oh, that's my boy. That's my man. I don't picture Peter having these nice strokes through the Sea of Galilee. He was a big man. And he's just slapping the water and water's going everywhere. Now he gets up out of the water to have this conversation with Jesus Christ. Do you need to stay up all night? Stay up all night. What do you need to do tonight? Do you need to go for a walk around your neighborhood? Do you need to stay here in the sanctuary and, and do business with God? This is the same kind of heart that we find in David. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. But when he was busted in his sin, what did he do? He ran to the Lord. Everything inside of us says run away from God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they wanted to hide from God's presence. But that's the last place that we need to go. We need to stay with believers, but we also need to run to the Lord. Do you see how John's relationship helped Peter in this point? He wasn't seeing the Lord, but it was John who helped him see the Lord. And that's why we need to stay in relationship even in times of failure. In verse 8 but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, which is about 300 feet, dragging the net with fish. So here they are in their little boat dragging the net. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Where did Peter deny the Lord? By campfire. Now what does Jesus set up? A campfire coincidence? Absolutely not. Saying, Peter, this is where you got off track, and so this is where I'm going to restore you. And God can actually restore us in those very places that we failed. He can use that fire of temptation, that fire of failure, to then become the place of restoration where we can encourage others and we can share God's love and forgiveness. There's fish that's laid there and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish. When God does things, he does it in a good way, doesn't he? These aren't little puny fish. These are nice, large fish. And probably the story grew on the size of the fish as the years continued on. 153, and there were so many, the net was not broken. There were so many, the net was not broken. Why does God record 153 fish? 
Now, some Bible teachers and Bible commentaries, they just have so much fun with 153 fish. They start going into numerology and what the numbers represent in Scripture. And there is some of that in the Bible. Like we know seven is the number of completion and eight's the number of new beginning. But I don't think that's the point here. I don't think John was trying to show us some secret meeting by recording 153 fish. You know what he is? He's given detail to recording the work of God. So we want to record the work of God. If God provides for you in a time where it's really tight financially and he gives you what you need and a little bit more, you want to write down that dollar amount and share it with your friends, especially with your family, your kids, your grandkids. Pay attention to detail and record that detail so you can share it with others and glorify the Lord. In verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast, come and dine. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. So at this point, they recognize this is the Lord. It's a side note, but it's worth noting. Every time we see Jesus in his resurrected state, he's enjoying food. This kind of ties into our weekend message of God created food to be received with thanksgiving. When we join the Lord, when we're all together in eternity, Revelation describes it as the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be a wonderful, glorified party with a lot of great food. And here Jesus has cooked them breakfast. He's saying, guys, let's eat together. Let's have breakfast together. More importantly, what Peter was looking for was found at the feet of Jesus. He was looking for fish. He wanted fish. And it was at the feet of Jesus all along. What is it that's caused you to want to drift? Are you looking for love? Well, it's it's at the feet of Jesus. Are you looking for identity? So you're going out to the field of occupation and the field of career and the field of profession. Obviously, got to provide for your family, provide for your needs, but it's more than that for you. You're looking for value. You're looking for validation. You're looking for identity. Oh, you're going to find it at the feet of Jesus. Maybe it's that perfect vacation. You're getting the backyard just so. It's at the feet of Jesus. What you're really longing for and what you're really looking for, it's at his feet. There's nothing wrong with those things. They become wrong when they're out of place and they're out of priority. Words cannot express the importance of this. We're created to be worshipers. You're never going to enjoy life and enjoy the blessings of God when you're looking to the blessings to be your satisfaction. You might be looking to your spouse. You might be looking to your kids. You might be looking to ministry. You might be saying, you know, I'm going to serve in in this way, expecting this to be my fulfillment and be my satisfaction. It's always back at the feet of Jesus. He's got something prepared for us to come and to feast with him, to have a meal with him. Every time we come and meet with the Lord, he's got something for us, for us to press in to be able to receive. You might want to write a side note here. If this rings a bell with you and you're resonating with emptiness, is Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon had every blessing under the sun, but he was empty. Saying, vanity of vanity. I just can't seem to find fulfillment and satisfaction. The whole book is summed up with this. The conclusion of all things is to fear God and to keep his commands. Fear him, worship him, respect him, keep his commands. What are his commands? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
the horizontal aspects of life are never going to make sense until the vertical relationship is right. Peter needed to come and experience this from the Lord. I love this about Christ. How many meals has Christ prepared for us in our failure? How many times when we've turned our back, when we've said things we shouldn't say, when we've done things, we've gone places we shouldn't have gone, Jesus doesn't forsake us. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He pursues us, died for our sins, rose again, waiting for us, saying, oh, I'm glad you're back. And in fact, I've got some provision for you. I've got some breakfast for you. This might be the exact word that you need to hear tonight. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to jump in, dive in, plunge, swim towards Christ, and experience this meal that he has prepared for you. Come and dine. Come and eat breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. As he's serving the bread and the fish, I bet they saw his wounds that he bore from the cross. Peter's thinking about his failures, thinking about the last time that he was around a campfire. Verse 15, so when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? One of the key ingredients, I think, to life is finding the framework to bring up the right conversation. And Jesus does this masterfully here. What do I mean by this? Is you don't want to just step into a difficult conversation. Jesus waits until Peter's done eating breakfast, and he says, okay, Peter, now let's get to the heart of this. Do you love me more than these? Maybe you need to have an important conversation with your spouse, and maybe it's a heated, and maybe there's some heart-level things that want to happen. You don't want to have that conversation right when they walk in the door after a stressful day, or you don't want to have that conversation right in the middle of the heat of the moment when everybody's losing their temper. Or if you've got young kids like we do, it's not a good time to have that conversation with a bunch of little voices and questions interjecting in the midst of a heart-to-heart conversation. So you've got to wait for the right time. Now, if you're one of those people that you can't hold back and it's so hard for you because we've got to get this figured out, it's worthwhile to wait till you've got the framework to have this kind of conversation. Does that make sense? So now Jesus has got the framework, it's the right time, and he asks the question, Simon, son of Jonah. It's interesting that he says Simon because Simon means shifting sand. It was his name before Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock. This identifies the very struggle that Peter was having. That one minute he could be hot, but the next minute he was cold. He asked this pertinent question, do you love me more than these? And if We go through these few verses, we do have to talk about the Greek words that are being used because in the Greek, there's several words for love and we translate it all into the same English word. We use love for entirely too many different things, don't we? I love the Broncos. I love cheeseburgers. I love ice cream. And then I go home and tell my wife, I love you, right? Those are entirely different things, aren't they? my love for the Broncos, my love for cheeseburgers, and then my love for my wife and my kids. And so 
this word that Jesus uses, he uses, do you agape me? It's the highest form of love. It's normally used of God's love for us. And he says, do you have this kind of committed love for me? And he also asks, do you love me more than these? Jesus was probably pointing to something. Maybe he's pointing to the fish, saying, do you love me more than these fish? Will you follow me more than these fish? Or maybe he's pointing to the other disciples saying, do you love me more than these guys? Because that was Peter's claim. He's saying, even if these knuckleheads forsake you, I'm not going to forsake you. Or maybe Jesus did a flyby and he pointed to the other disciples and to the fish. We don't know. But the question demands an answer. Peter, where am I in your life? Do I have the priority? And this is what God desires. He's jealous for our love in a good sense. He wants to be number one. He's not willing to be second. He doesn't want our jobs. He doesn't want others to be more important than Jesus Christ. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter uses the word phileo. And this is brotherly love. It's similar to like is what he's saying. It's hard for Peter to say, I have this unconditional, committed kind of love towards you. And he said to him, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. Peter's no longer prideful. He's no longer going to boast for things that he can't accomplish. I think this is actually great growth in Peter's life. It's honest. If we're weak, we need to say we're weak. If we're saying, I'm struggling with having this committed type of love, well, God, I do know that I like you. I, I can tell you that I, that I like you. I'm not going to try to puff myself up in your, in your presence anymore. You would almost anticipate Jesus to say at this point, well, that's not a good enough answer. I wanted you to say that you agaped me. And, well, Peter, that really offended me when you said that you didn't want anything to do with me, when you denied me before men. But Jesus just commissioned him to be a pastor. He just says, all right, Peter, feed my lambs. If you love me, then, then take care of my people. God's much more gracious than we are, isn't he? And we're much slower to give over God's work than God is himself. This is a great correlation between our love for God. If we love God, then we love people. We love his lambs. We care for the ones that Jesus cared for. We love the ones that Jesus died for. In verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And again, he says, do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So the same exact conversation, except for this time, Jesus is giving another instruction like the first, but a little different. The first is feed my sheep, feed my lambs. How do you do that? By giving them God's word. Now he says, tend them. Take care of them. Take care of the weak. Protect them. Guide them. Lead them. Be a shepherd to them. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? So the first two times he's saying, do you agape me? And Peter's saying, well, I phileo you. Now Jesus even calls the phileo love into question. He's saying, Peter, do you even like me? Do you even have that kind of love toward me? Notice the response then from Peter. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, 
do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So we have this agape phileo conversation happening. Jesus is saying, do you even phileo me? But also how many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. Now how many times is he being asked if he loves the Lord? Three times. This is part of the restoration. God, as he restores us, comes in grace. He provides a meal for us. He gives us 153 fish that we don't deserve, but he also comes in truth, doesn't he? And he loves us enough to say, okay, let's get this right. This is where you went off track, and this is where you get back on track, and this is the issue that you need to deal with. And I love this in my life. It's not always comfortable, but God's so good at it. A lot of times I can't even clearly see the issue, but God can. And he begins to speak through his word, speak through circumstances, speak through his still small voice saying, Eric, this is what you gotta deal with. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he asks these three times and Peter gives the same response, Lord, I phileo you. And it's enough for Jesus. Jesus says, okay, Peter, you phileo me, you like me, good enough feed my sheep, and he's commissioned in this task to be a pastor. Now, this might be revolutionary for us tonight. Start liking the Lord. Start liking the Lord. A lot of times we say, I love the Lord, and hopefully that's the case. Hopefully we do have that kind of committed love for the Lord, but what if we, like Peter said, I'm going to start liking the Lord, because we're pretty committed to a lot of things we like, don't we? You might have your TV show that has got your attention and you're going to watch it and you're going to watch it all and you know exactly when it comes out and you like it. You may enjoy social media and Facebook and Twitter and that's your kind of your thing and you like it. In fact, you physically, literally go throughout your day hitting different comments that you like, right? Sports might be your thing and you've got your team that, that you follow. Better luck next year. We all know who that team is, Right? But you like that team. You're already preparing and reading. The NFL draft is coming up and you know what pick they've got and where they're slotted and who their potentials are. And what if we started liking the Lord in that way? Some of you right now are in the midst of a dating relationship and you're not even here in the room right now because you're Twitter-pated. You're, you're off in la-la land thinking about this person. Great, that is awesome. Praise the Lord if they're a believer and loving the Lord and walking with the Lord. But what if you started liking Christ in that way? What if your heart was won over to Christ in that way? Jesus was satisfied with Peter's answer if Peter's saying, I phileo you. And that's a beginning place for us and it's a contagious place for us. And now he's given this task of pastoring and caring and loving God's people. Verse 18, most assuredly I say to you, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you of where you do not wish. Jesus is speaking prophetically in the future of when Peter is going to be martyred, when he's going to be crucified upside down. Peter, there's going to come this point when you're old where you won't be able to dress yourself. You won't be able to go where you want to go. Someone's going to take you where you do not wish to go. Fast forwarding to the book of Acts, you remember when Peter is arrested and he's going to be executed the next day and the church is praying for him and Peter's asleep. Why do you think he was asleep? Because Jesus told him, you're going to be old. And he wasn't old at that point. 
he knew that somehow God was going to be faithful to his word. He took God at his word. He knew that it wasn't his time to go home to be with the Lord. Verse 19, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to them, he said to him, follow me. It's amazing to think about Peter being martyred for Christ, reading the testimonies even today of men and women who are martyred for their love for Jesus Christ and God's glorified in that sacrifice that they make unto the Lord. However, God's also glorified in a life that's lived for the Lord. Yes, he's glorified in someone who dies for the Lord, but also when we invest our life in the things of God. What are the closing instructions for Peter? He's got a pretty big task to do. Take the gospel to the world. Feed my people, tend my people. God didn't sit down with Peter and say, all right, here's uh, all the things that you need to know for this task of being a pastor, of taking the gospel to the world. Very simple follow me, follow me, walk with me every day, check in with me. What's my plan? What's my will? How did I live my life? Do what I did. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Sometimes we like to make it really complicated. Maybe you're on the brink of a big step that God's calling you to and you're overwhelmed. Simplify, follow the Lord. Maybe life right now is really mundane, it's extremely boring, and you're like, man, I guess wish God would just give me some big step to take. Just follow him. Follow him every day. God, what do you have? Every moment throughout the day. God, what do you have for me right now, tonight? Follow me. Verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, whom also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is a classic response from Peter. God says to Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. He looks back at John and says, well, what about John? (laughs) Because a lot of times in our relationship with the Lord, we're too busy looking at everybody else's journey with Christ instead of focusing on Christ. And maybe that's where you're stumbled tonight. God's shown you this is your path. This is what you're to do. This is the road you're to walk. But you're saying, what about this disciple? What about this follower of Christ? Are they going to be martyred as well? Are they going to get to go to Disneyland? Do they have the road of blessing while I've got the road of suffering? And what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, mind your own business. That's paraphrase. That's the Eric paraphrase right there. He said, mind your own business. You follow me. A great application for all of us. Don't get stumbled by focusing on others. Follow Christ. In verse 23, then this saying went out among the brethren that his disciples would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but he said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is it that to you? Classic misunderstanding. This happens sometimes in the life of a pastor. You say one thing and somebody else walks out the office door or walks out out the sanctuary and they've got a completely different story. And you're like, wait a second, I thought we just had this understanding. It happens in our homes, right? You sit down with one of your kids, especially a teenager, and you say, okay, here's the agreement. 
And then they walk out the door and their version of the agreement was completely different than your version of the agreement, right? And here, that was the same misunderstanding, thinking, well, Peter's never gonna die. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John's identifying himself. Verse 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And that includes e-books as well. John focused on seven things, seven miracles, seven signs, seven I am statements so that we would come to this place of believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Here's a little homework for this week. Go back and read the book of John. It's 21 chapters. Maybe take four or five chapters a day, get it done in five days, and allow the Lord to bring some things to the surface that he wants you to focus on through this study. Then begin to read ahead in the book of Acts. But here's some things to apply tonight before we go home. The first, we've seen from this chapter, the value of relationships, the value of relationships. Hebrews tells us, do not forsake fellowshipping together as we see the day of Christ approaching. Commit and invest in relationship with other believers because when we fail, and we will, we need one another. We don't want to be going through a dark season spiritually without a John in our life. Amen? So right now, commit to it and say, relationships matter. Maybe you're too busy and you're a part of some type of fellowship group and you're saying, I just don't have time for this anymore. Yes, you do. That's the most important thing in your life, second to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You commit to it. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ. Make time for them. Stay connected to them. We find the value of relationship. And then we see the God of restoration, don't we, in John 21. That he restores. That he comes to the shore of our lives saying, come and dine. He comes in grace and truth. Tonight, if you need to get things right with the Lord, if you've done things that you never thought you'd do, if you've drifted, if you're not in a healthy, thriving place, as we come to communion tonight, come to Jesus. He's the one you need. He's the lover of your soul. Enjoy this meal that he's prepared for you to remind you of his broken body, of his shed blood. Have a conversation with him and allow him to restore you. He loves you. And he wants to entrust upon you a calling upon your life that you don't deserve. Peter didn't deserve the calling that was placed upon his life. It was a calling of grace. And that's the same with everyone throughout the scriptures and everyone that God uses today. God doesn't look at your resume and look at your performance and go, okay, now you're qualified to be used by God. He uses unworthy people as trophies of his grace. Get right with him. Receive that calling that he's placed upon your life. Before Peter could be used greatly, he had to be broken deeply. He had to come to the end of his pride. He had to get to a place of humility. Very practically, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on others. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on others. At the very end of this chapter, Peter's like, what about John? Is he going to get martyred? What, I don't know about that. I don't know if this is a fair deal. Just get your eyes on the Lord. Maybe going, God, I lost my job, but this brother 
over here, he just got a promotion. What's going on with that? Lord's like, nope, get your eyes on me. You just follow me, follow me, and follow me. Let's stand together and let's pray.